You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft's security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Villingham. And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science. And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft security. And now, let's unlock the pod. Hello, Natalia. Welcome to episode 20 of Security Unlocked. This is a, an interesting episode. People may notice that your voice is absent from the, this interview that we had with Maria Puertas Calvo. Are, how are you doing? You okay? You feeling better? I am. Thank you. I'm feeling much better, though I am bummed I missed this conversation with Maria. I had so much fun talking with her in episode eight about tackling identity threats with AI. I'm sure this was equally as good. So give me the scoop. What did you and Maria talk about? It was a great conversation. So, you know, this is our 20th episode, which is kind of crazy of Security Unlocked. And we get, we're getting some great feedback from listeners. Please send us more. We want to hear your thoughts on the, on the podcast. But there have been a number of episodes where people contact us afterwards on Twitter or on email and say, hey, that guest was amazing. You know, I want to hear more. And Maria was, was definitely one of those guests who we got feedback that they'd love for us to invite them back and learn more about this story. So Maria is on the podcast today to tell us about her journey into security and then her path to Microsoft. I won't give much away, but I will say that if you're studying and you're considering a path into cybersecurity or you're considering a path into data science, I think you're going to really enjoy Maria's story, how she sort of walks through her academia and then her time into Microsoft. We talk about koalas and we talk about the perfect taco. Yeah, to pair with the perfect guac, which she covered the first time around. Now tacos, I feel like we're building a meal here. I'm kind of digging the idea of a security unlocked recipe book. I, I think we need some kind of mocktail or cocktail to pair with this. Yeah, I do think two recipes might not be enough to <laughs> qualify for a recipe book. Yeah, I mean, I'm feeling ambitious. I think I think we could get more recipes, fill out a book. But with that, I, I cannot wait to hear Maria's episode. So on with the pot. On with the pod. Maria Puertescalvo, welcome back to the Security Unlocked podcast. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great, Nick. Thank you so much for having me back. I am super flattered you guys like invited me for the second time. Yeah, well, th- thank you very much for coming back. The episode that we, we, we first met you on the podcast was episode eight, which we called Tackling Identity Threats with AI, which was a really, really popular episode. We got great feedback from listeners and we thought, uh, let's, let's bring you back and hear a bit more about your, your own story about how you got into security, how you got into identity, how you got into AI, and then sort of how you found your way to Microsoft. But since we last spoke, I want to get the timeline right. Did you have twins? In that period of time, or had the twins already <laughs> happened when we spoke to you in episode eight? No, the twins had already happened. The, I Got think it. it's been a few months, but they're they are nine nine months old now. Nine yeah. months old, and and the other interesting thing is you're now in Spain. Yes, when we spoke to you last, you were in the Redmond area. Is that right? Yes, yes. The last time when we we spoke, I w- I was in Seattle. 
but I was about to make this like big trip across the world to come to Spain. And and the reason was actually, you know, the, the twins hadn't met my family. I am originally from Spain and, and my whole family is is here. And, you know, because of COVID and everything that happened, they weren't able to travel to the US to see us when they were born. So my husband and I decided to just like, you know, do a trip and take them and, and we're staying here for a few months now. That's awesome. I've been to Madrid and I've been to... I think I've only been to Madrid, actually. Where, where, are you in that area? What part of Spain are you in? Yes, yes. I'm in Madrid. I'm in Madrid. I, I'm from Madrid. Oh, awesome. Beautiful city. I love it. So obviously, we met you in episode eight, but if you could give us a, a little sort of mini reintroduction to who you are, what's your job at Microsoft? What is your what does your day-to-day look like? That'd be great. Yeah. So I am the lead data scientist in Identity Secure and Protection, Identity Security team, who we are in charge of making sure that all of the users who use uh, Microsoft Identity Services, either Azure Active Directory or Microsoft Account, are safe and protected from malicious, you know, uh, cyber criminals. So, so my team builds the algorithms and detections that are then put into uh, protections. Like, for example, we build machine learning for risk-based authentication. So, if we, if our models think that authentication is is probably compromised, then maybe that authentication is challenged with MFA or block, depending on the configuration of the tenant, et cetera. So my team's day-to-day activities are, you know, uh, building new detections, using new data sets across Microsoft. We have so much data between, you know, logs and APIs and interactions between all of our customers with Microsoft systems. Uh, so, so we analyze the data and, and we build models, uh, apply AI and machine learning to detect those bad activities in the ecosystem. It could be, you know, an account compromise, a sign-in that looks suspicious, but also fraud. Let's say like somebody uh, creates millions of spammy email addresses with Microsoft account, for example, to, to, to do bad things to the ecosystem. We're also in charge of detecting that. Got it. So every time I log in or every time I authenticate with either my Azure Active Directory account for work or my personal Microsoft account, that authentication uh, event flows through a set of systems and potentially a set of models that your team owns. And then if they're, and if that authentication is sort of deemed legitimate, I'm on my way to the service that I'm accessing. And if it's deemed not legitimate, it can go for a challenge through MFA or be blocked. Did, did I get that right? You got that absolutely right. So that means, and I think we might have talked about this on the last podcast, but I still, I as a longtime employee of Microsoft, I still get floored by the the sheer scale of all this. So there's... I mean, there's hundreds of millions of Microsoft account users because that's the consumer service. So that's going to be uh-huh. everything from Xbox and Hotmail and Outlook.com and using the Bing website. So that's that's literally in the hundreds of millions realm. Is it is it a billion or is it is it just hundreds of millions? Depends on how you count them. Uh, if it's per day, it's hundreds of millions. So per month, I think it's close to a billion. Yes, for of users, but the number of authentications overall is much higher because you know the users are authenticating in, in many cases, many many times a day. A lot of what we evaluate is not only like your username and password authentications. There's also the you know the model authentic- authentication protocols. They have your tokens cached in the application, and those come back for requests for access. So the, we evaluate those as well. So it's a it's actually tens of billions of authentications a day for both the Microsoft account system and the Azure Active Directory system. Azure Active Directory is also a really big. Uh, it's almost 
it's it's getting really close to Microsoft account in terms of monthly monthly active users. And actually, this year with you know COVID and everybody, you know, the all the schools going remote and so many people going to work from home, we have seen a huge increase in 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 monthly active users for Azure Active Directory as well. And do you treat those two systems separately or, or are they essentially the same? It's the same anomaly detection and it's the same sort of models that you use to score and determine if, uh, if an authentication attempt is, is, uh, is legitimate or, or, or otherwise. It's like theoretically the same, you know, like we, we use the same methodology, but then there are different, the, the two systems are different. They live in different places with different architectures. The data that is logged is, is different. So these, these were initially not, you know, I, identity only uh, took care of those two systems like a few years ago before they used to be owned by different teams. So the architecture underneath is still different. So we still have to build different models and maintain them differently. And, you know, uh, uh, tune them differently. So so it is more work, but uh, the, the theory and the idea under how we build them is is very similar. Are there some sort of trends that have, you know, appeared having these two massive, massive systems sort of running in parallel, but with the same sort of approach? What kind of behaviors or what kind of anomalies do you see detected in one versus the other? Do they sort of function sort of similar, like similar enough? Or do you see some sort of very different anomalies that appear in one system and and not another? They are, interestingly, pretty different. Uh, When we see attacks, spikes and things like that, they don't always reflect one or the other. I think the the motivation of the people that attack enterprises and organizations that's is definitely different from the the hackers that are attacking consumer accounts i think they're you know they're sold in the black market separately and they're priced separately you know and differently and i think they're they're generally used for different purposes we see sometimes spikes in correlation but but not that much before we sort of uh, jump into to your personal story into security into Microsoft into into data science is the you know these talking about these sheer numbers talking about the hundreds of millions of of authentications i think you said like tens of billions that are happening every day is that a dream for a data scientist to just have such a massive volume of data and signals at your fingertips that you can use to go and build models, train models, refine models? Is that, you know, is this adage of more signal equals better? Does that apply? Or at some point, do you now have challenges of too much signal and you're now working on a different set of problems? That's a great question. It is an absolute dream and it's also a nightmare. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it is. And I'll tell you why for both, right? Like, uh, it is a great dream. Like, obviously, that the, the sheer scale of the data, the, you know, the, the fact there are a lot of things that are easier because sometimes when you're working with data and statistics, you have to do a lot of things to estimate if like the things that you're computing are statistically significant, right? Like, do I have enough data to approach that this sample is going to be a reflection of reality and things like that? With the amount of data that we have, with the amount of users that we have, it's we don't have that, we, we don't really have that problem, right? Like we're able to observe, you know, the whole world without having to to figure out if what we're seeing you know, it's similar to the whole world or not. So that's really cool. Also, because we're 
you know, have so many users, then we also have, you know, we're a big focus for attackers. So, so we can see everything, you know, that happens in, in, in the cybersecurity world and like the adversary world, we can find it in, in our data. And, and that is really interesting, right? It's, it's really cool. That sounds fascinating, but let, let, let's table that for a second because I'd love to sort of go back in time and I'd love to learn about your journey into security, into sort of computer science, into tech. Where did it all start? So you grew up in Madrid, is that right? Yes, I grew up in Madrid. And when I was finishing high school and I was trying to figure out like, what do I do? I just decided to study telecommunication engineering. It's what's called in Spain, but it's a bit, you know, the the equivalent U.S. degree is electrical engineering. Because I was actually, you know, really, really interested in math and science and physics. They were like my favorite subjects in high school. I was pretty, really good at it, actually. And, but at the same time, I was like, well, this, you know, an engineering degree sounds like something that I could apply all of this to. And the one that seems like the coolest in the future and like I, I is electrical engineering. Like I, at that time, computer science was also kind of like my second choice, but I knew that in electrical engineering, I could also learn a lot of computer science. It, it, it has like a curriculum that includes a lot of computer science, but also you learn about communication theory and, you know, things like how do cell phones work and how does television work? And you can learn about computer vision and image processing it or all kinds of signal processing. I just found it fascinating. So, so I studied that in college. And then when I finished college, it was 2010. So it was right in the middle of the Great Recession, which actually hit Spain really, really, really badly when it came to the the labor market. The unemployment back then, I think it was something like 25%. And people who were getting out of school, even in engineering degrees, which were traditionally degrees that would have, you know, great opportunities they were not really getting good jobs. People were only consulting firms were hiring them um, and and really paying really really little money. It was actually pretty kind of a shame. So I said, "What well, what what should I do?" And I I had been a, a good student during college, so and I had a professor that you know he that I had done my kind of thesis with him and his research group. And he said, hey, why don't you just like continue studying? Like you can actually go for your PhD and because you have really good grades, I'm sure you can just get it fully financed. You can get a scholarship that will like finance, you know, four years of PhD. And, you know, that way you don't have to pay for your studies, but also you kind of like, you're like a researcher and you have a like money to live. I was like, well, that sounds like a really good plan. Like I actually sounds good. Yeah. So so I kept doing that. And and I, you know, did my master's and this master's I was in computer science, but it was very pick and choose, right? Like like you could pick your branch and what classes you took. And so the master's was the first half of the PhD was basically getting all your PhD qualifying courses, which also are equivalent to to doing your master's. So I picked kind of like the artificial intelligence type branch, which had a lot of, you know, classes on machine learning and learn a lot of things that are apply that are use applied machine learning. So like uh, natural language processing and speech and speaker recognition and biometrics and computer vision, basically all kinds of fields of artificial intelligence where, where in the courses that I took and 
And I really, really found it fascinating. There wasn't, you know, a data science degree back then. Like now everybody has a data science degree, but this is like 10 years ago, uh, at least, you know, in Spain, there wasn't a data science degree, but, but this is like the closest thing. Uh, that and that was my first contact with uh, you know artificial intelligence and machine learning and I I loved it and and then I did my master's thesis on uh, kind of like a biometrics and in terms of applying statistical models to forensic fingerprints to to understand if a person can be falsely let's say accused of a crime because their fingerprint randomly matches a fingerprint that is found in a crime scene. So kind of try to figure out like how likely is that? Because there have been people in the past that have been wrongly convicted uh, because of their fingerprints have been found in a crime scene. And then after the fact, they have found the right person. And then, you know, like uh, it's not a very scientific method what is followed right now. So that that was a, a really cool thing too. That then I never did anything related to that in my life, but but it was a very cool thing to study when I was in, in school. Well, that, that's I've got some questions about that. That's fascinating. So, how did you even stumble upon that as a as a as a as a research focus? Was there a, a particular case you might have read in the in the news or something? Like, I I think I've never heard of people being falsely accused or convicted through having the same fingerprints. I guess unless you're an identical twin. Mm-hmm. Actually, I can tell you because I have identical twins, but also that because I studied a lot about fingerprints is that identical twins do not have the same fingerprints uh, because fingerprints are formed when you're in the womb. So they're not... They're not like a genetic thing. They happen kind of like a, as a random pattern when when your body is forming in the womb, and and they happen. They're different. Uh, so so humans have unique fingerprints, and that's true. But the problem with the the fingerprint recognition is that it's very partial and it's very imperfect because the the latent it's called the latent fingerprint, the one that is found in a crime scene, is then recovered. You know, using like some powder, and it's kind of like. You you just found some you know sweaty thing in a surface and then you have to lift that from there right and and that has imperfections and and it only it's not going to be like a full fingerprint you're going to have a partial fingerprint and then then you basically the way the matching works is using this like little po- points and and bifurcations of the riches that exist in your fingerprint. And, and then, you know, looking at the, the location and direction of those, then they're matched with other fingerprints to understand if they're the same one or not. But the, because you don't have the full picture, it is possible that you make a mistake. The one case that it's been kind of really, really famous actually happened with the Madrid bombings that happened in 2004 where you know they they blew up uh some trains and and a couple hundred people died then they they actually found a fingerprint in one of the I don't remember like in the crime scene and it actually matched in the FBI fingerprint database it matched the fingerprint of a lawyer from Portland, Oregon, I believe it's what it was. And then he was initially, you know, uh, I don't know if he ended up being convicted, but, but, you know, it was a, it was a really famous case. Yes. I think he was initially convicted and then, but then he was not after they found the right person. And they they actually found that yeah both fingerprints like the 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 guy whose fingerprint it really was and these other guy they their fingerprints both match the crime scene fingerprint. But that's 
only because it was only a piece of it, right? You you don't put your finger, like you don't roll it left to right. Like when you arrive at the airport, right? That they make you roll your finger and like have the whole thing. It, you're maybe just, you know, the the, the criminal fingerprint is, is very small. Was that a big part of the the research was trying to understand how much of a fingerprint is necessary for a sort of statistically relevant or sort of accurate determination that it belongs to to the to the right person? Yeah, so the results of the research did have some outcome around like depending on how many of those points that are used for identification, which are called minutia, depending on how, how many of those are available, it changes the probability of a random match with a random person, basically. So the more points you have, the less likely it is that that will happen. The one thing, like as, as we're talking about this, that I sort of half remember from maybe being a kid, I don't know, growing up in Australia, is don't koalas have fingerprints that are the same as humans? Did I make that up? Do you know anything about this? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I have I never heard such thing. I'm, now I'm I have to look know. this up. I have a feeling yeah. that ko- koalas have fingerprints that are either very close to or indistinguishable from from humans. I'm going to look this one up. I wonder if like a koala could ever be wrongly convicted of a crime. Right, right. So like <laughs> if I want to go rob a bank in Australia, all I need to do is like bring a koala with me and leave the koala in the bank after I've successfully exited the bank with all the gold <laughs> bars in my backpack. And then the police would show up and they'd arrest the koala and they'd get the fingerprints and they'd go, well, it must be the koala. This is a foolproof plan. I'm glad I discussed this with you on the podcast. Thank you, Maria, for uh, validating my hypothesis. Now now you can't publish this. Oh, crumbs. You're right. Yeah. Okay. All right. We have to edit this out of the the recording. Um, Okay. I didn't realize we were going to talk so much about fingerprints. That's my fault, but I found that fascinating. Thank you. So what happens next? Do you then go to Microsoft? Do you come straight out of your education at university in Madrid straight to Microsoft? Kind of, but no. So what happens next is that while I I finished the master's part of this PhD, and at this time, I'm actually dating my now husband. And he's an American uh, working in Washington, D.C. as an electrical engineer. So I, you know, I finished my master's and... My, I say, what, what I, I kind of want to go be in the U.S. Uh, so I can be with him. And, you know, I have this PhD scholarship that actually lets me go do research abroad and, you know, like kind of pays for it. So I find um, another research group in the University of Maryland, College Park, which is really, really close to, to D.C. And, and I go there to do research for six months. So I spent six months there also doing research, uh, also using uh, machine learning for, for a different problem around iris recognition. And, you know, the six months went by and I was like, well, I want to stay a little longer. Like, I, you know, I, I really like living here. And I extended that like another six months. I And at that point, you know, I wasn't really allowed to do that with my scholarship. So I just asked my professor to, you know, finance me for that time. And and, I, and at that time, I decided like, you know, I, I actually don't think I want to like pursue this whole PhD thing. So so I stayed six more months working for him. And then I decided I, I, I'm not a really big fan of academia I went into research in, in grad school in Spain, mostly because there weren't other opportunities. I was super 
you know, glad I did because I, I love all the research and the knowledge that I gained with all, you know, with my master's where I learned everything about artificial intelligence. But at this point, I really, really wanted to go into industry. Um, so I applied to a lot of jobs in a lot of different companies, you know, figuring out like my background is in biometrics and machine learning, things like that. Data science is not a word that had ever come to my mind that I was or could be, but I was more like interested in like, you know, maybe software roles related to companies that did things that I had a similar background in. For like a few months, I was looking and I, I didn't even get calls and I had no work experience other than, you know, I had been through college and grad school. So I had, you know, and, and I was from Spain and from a Spanish university and there was really nothing in my resume that was like, oh, this is like, the person we need to call. So nobody <laughs> called me. <laughs> and and then one day, uh, I, I received a LinkedIn message from a Microsoft recruiter. And she says, Hey, I have, I'm interested in talking to you about a role at Microsoft. So I said, Oh my God, that sounds amazing. So she calls me and we talk about it. And she's like, Yeah, there's like this team at Microsoft that is like, run mostly by data scientists. And what they do is they help prevent fraud, abuse, and compromise for a lot of Microsoft online services. So they they basically use data and machine learning to do things like stopping spam for Outlook.com, doing like family safety, like finding like things on the web that, that should be like not for children. They were also doing like phishing detection on the browser, um, like phishing URL detection on the browser and account compromise detection for Microsoft account. And so I was like, sure, that sounds amazing. You know, I would love to be in the process. And I was actually lying because I, <laughs> I, I did not want to move to Seattle. <laughs> like, <laughs> at that time, I was so hopeful that I will find a job, at, you know, somewhere in DC on the East Coast, which is like closer to Spain and where, where we lived. And, but at the same time, you know, Microsoft calls and you don't say no, mostly when nobody else is calling you. Um, <laughs> so, so I said, sure, let's, you know, I, the, the least I can do is like see how the interview goes. So I did the phone screen and then I, they, they flew me to Seattle and I had seven interviews and a lunch interview and a lunch kind of casual interview. So it was like an eight hour interview. It was from nine to five. And, you know, everything sounded great. The roles sounded great. Um, the, the team, the, were, the things that they were doing sounded super interesting. And to my surprise, the next day when I'm at the airport waiting for my flight to to go back to DC, the recruiter calls me and says, "Hey, you, you know, you passed the interview, and we're gonna make you an offer. You'll have an offer in the in the mail tomorrow." I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> what? Like, I could not. This it's crazy to me that this was like only seven years ago. It, but oh, this yeah. is seven, so this is 2014, 2013." Uh, actually, when I did the interviews, it was more. It was longer ago. It was 2012. 2012, got it. And then I ended starting at Microsoft in 2013. Got it. I started as a, I think at that time they call us analysts, but it was funny because the the team was very proud on the, the fact that they were one of the first teams doing like real data science at Microsoft. But there were too many teams at Microsoft calling themselves data scientists and basically only doing like analytics and dashboards and things like that. So because of that, the team that I was saying was really proud and they didn't want to call themselves data scientists. So they, I don't know, we called ourselves like analyst PMs. And then we went from that to decision scientists, uh, which I never Ooh. understood the, the name. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so that's how I started. Okay, so so that first role was in 
I heard you say Outlook.com. So were you in the sort of consumer email pipeline team? Is that sort of where that, that sat? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the team was actually called Safety Platform. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was a team that provided the abuse, fraud, and and like malicious detections for other teams that were at the time it was called the Windows Live division. So yes. all the all the teams that were part of that division, they were like the browser, right? Like Internet Explorer, Hotmail, which was after name Outlook.com, and Microsoft account, which is the consumer ecosystem. We're all part of that. And our team basically helped them with detections and machine learning for their their abusers and fraudsters and and you know hackers that that could affect their customers. So my first role was actually in the spam team, anti spam team. I was working on outbound outbound spam detection. So uh, we will build models to detect when users who send spam from Outlook.com accounts out, so we could stop that mail basically. And I'd love to know like the models that you were building and training and refining then to detect outbound spam and then the kinds of sort of machine learning technology that you're you're playing with today. Is there any similarity or are they just worlds apart? I mean we are talking 7 years and you know 7 years in technology may as well be like a century. But, you know, is there common threads? Is there common learnings from back there? Or has everything just changed? Yes, both. Like, there, there are <laughs> obviously common threads. You know, the world has evolved. But what really has evolved is the, the, the underlying infrastructure and tools available for people to deploy machine learning models. Like, back then, we, the production machine learning models that were running either in like authentication systems, either in off, you know, offline in the background after the fact or or even for the for the mail. The Microsoft developers had to go and like code the actual, let's say that you use like, I don't know, logistic regression, which is a very typical, easy uh, machine learning algorithm, right? They had to like code that. They had to, you know, there wasn't like a like a library that they could call that they would say, okay, apply logistic regression to to this data with these parameters. Back then, it was like people had to code their own machine learning algorithms from like the math that backs them, right? So that was actually make things so much, you know, harder. They There weren't like the tools to actually like do like data manipulation, visualization, modeling, tuning, the way that we have so many things today. So that, you know, made things kind of hard. Nothing was nothing was like easy to use for the data scientists. It, it, there was a lot of work around, you know, how do you like manual labor is like, okay, I'm going to like run the model with this parameters. And then like, you know, based on the results, you would change that and tweak it a little bit. Today, you have programs that do that for you and, and then show you all the results in like a super cool graph that tells you, uh, you know, like this is the exact parameters you need to use for maximizing this one, uh, you know, output. Like if you want to maximize accuracy or precision or recall, then that is just like so much easier. That sounds really fascinating. So, Maria, you now you now run a team, and I, I would love to sort of get your thoughts on what makes a great data scientist, and and what do you look for when you're hiring into into your team or into sort of your your broader organization under uh, under identity. What perspectives and experience and skills are you trying to sort of add in, and how do you go find it? 
Oh, what a great question. Uh, something that I'm actually, that's the, the answer of that is something I'm refining every day. The, you know, the more I experience I get and the more people I hire, I, I feel like it's always a learning process is like what works and what doesn't. You know, I try to be open-minded and not try to hire everybody to be like me. So that's, I'm trying to learn from all the people that I hire that are good. Like what are their, you know, what's like special about them that I should try to look in other people that I hire. But I would say like some common threats, I think it's like really good communication skills. Like Obviously the basics of, you know, being, having a strong background in statistical modeling and machine learning is key. Uh, but many people these days have that. The domain... Knowledge is really important in our team because when you apply data science to cybersecurity, there are a lot of things that make the job really hard. One of them is the the data is what it's called really imbalanced because there are mostly most of the interactions with with the system. Most of the data represents good activities and the bad activities are very few and hard to find. They're like maybe less than 1%. So that makes it harder in general to 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 be list detections. And the other problem is that you're in an adversarial environment, which means you know you're not detecting you know a crosswalk in in a road like it's a typical problem of of computer vision these days. A crosswalk is going to be a crosswalk today or tomorrow. But if I detect an attacker in the data today, and then we enforce we do something to stop that attacker or to or to get them detected, then the next day they might do things differently because they're going to adapt to what you're doing. So you need to build machine learning models or detections that are robust enough that use use what we call features or or the look at data that it's not going to be easy easily gameable. And and it's really easy to just say, oh, you know, there's an attack coming from, I don't know, like pick a country like China. Let's just like make China more important in our algorithm. But like maybe tomorrow that same attacker just picks IP addresses in in a botnet that is not in China. It's in, I don't know, in Spain. So so you just have to, you know, really get deep into like what it means to do data science in our own domain and 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 gain that knowledge. So that knowledge for me is it's important, but it's also something that that you can gain in the job. But then things like the ability to adapt and and then also the ability to communicate with other stakeholders, what the data is actually telling us, because it's, you know, you, you need to be able to tell a story with the data. You need to be able to present the data in a way that other people can understand it or present the results of your research in, in a way that other people can understand it and really uh, kind of buy your ideas or, or what you want to express. And I think that that is really important as well. I sort of wanted to touch on what role is there a place in data science for people that that don't have a sort of traditional or an orthodox or a linear path into the field? Can you come from a different discipline? Can you come from sort of an informal education or background? Can you be self-taught? Can you come from a completely different industry? What, what sort of flexibility exists or should there exist for adding in sort of different perspectives and, and sort of diversity in, in this particular space of machine learning? Yes, there are actually, because it's such a new discipline, when I started at Microsoft, none of us started our degrees or our careers thinking that we wanted to go into data science. And my team had people who had, you know, degrees in economics, degrees in psychology, degrees in engineering. And then they had arrived to data science through through different ways. I think data science is really like a fancy 
way of saying statistics. It's like big data statistics, right? It's like, how do we uh, model a lot of data to like tell us to do predictions or, or tell us like what, how the data is distributed or, or how different data based on different data points looks more like is this category or this other category. So it's all really like from the field of statistics. And statistics is used in any type of research, right? Like when you when people in medicine are doing studies or any other kind of social sciences are doing studies, they're using a lot of that. And, and they're more and more using like concepts that are really related to what we use in, in data science. So in that sense, it's it's really possible to come to a lot of different fields. Generally, the, the people who do really well as data scientists are people who have like a PhD and have done this type of, you know, research, in it, but it doesn't really matter what field. I actually know that there, there are some companies out there that their job is to like get people that come out of PhDs programs, but they don't have like a, like a very, you know, like you said, like a linear path to data science. And then they kind of like do like a one year training thing to like make them data scientists because they do have like, the all the background in terms of like the statistics and the knowledge of the algorithms and everything, but they maybe they're they've been really academic and they're not they don't maybe know programming or or things that are more related to the tech or or they just don't know how to handle the data that is that big. So they get them ready for to work in the industry. But but they you know I've met a lot of them in 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 my career, uh, people who have gone through these Skype programs and some of them are PhDs in physics or any other field. So that's pretty common. In the self-taught role, it's also very possible. I think people who uh, maybe started as like software engineers, for example, and then there's so much content out there that it's even free. If you really want to learn data science and machine learning, you can you know go from anything from Coursera to YouTube, uh, things that are free, things that are paid, but that you can actually gain great knowledge from people who are the best in the world at teaching this stuff. So definitely possible to do it that way as well. Awesome. Before we let you go, we talked about the perfect guacamole recipe last time because you had that in your Twitter profile. Mm-hmm. Do you recall that? I'm not making I this do. up, right? No. <laughs> All right. So, so we had the perfect guacamole recipe. I wondered what was your perfect... Is it like I wanted to ask about tacos, like what your thoughts were on tacos, but I, I don't want to be rote. I don't want to be uh, too cliche. So maybe is there another sort of food that you love that you would like to leave us with your sort of perfect recipe? <laughs> That's really funny. I, I actually had tacos for lunch today. That is You uh, did? What? Yeah. Tell me about it. What did you have? <laughs> I didn't make them though. I, I went oh. out to eat them. Were they uh, awesome? Did you love them? They were really good. Yeah. So All right, tell I us about those tacos. It's Tacos is one of my favorite foods, but I actually have a taco recipe that I make that it's I find it really good and really easy. It's shrimp okay. tacos. All right. So it's it's super easy. You just like marinate your shrimp in like a mix of lime, chipotle. You know how those like chipotle chilies that come in a can with like adobo sauce? Yeah, the, it's like a little, it's like a half can. And yeah, and it's like really in, dark, the sauce. Really dark and, and thick. And in my house, you open the can and you end up only using about a third of it. And you go, I'm going to use this yes, later. And then and you put like, it in the fridge and then it, and then you find it like six months later and it's evolved and it's semi-sentient. But exactly. I know exactly what you're talking about. So that you you put like some of those, that like very smoky sauce that comes in that can or or you can chop up some of the chili in there as well and then lime and honey. And then that's it. You marinate your shrimp and that and then you just like cook them in a pan. And then you put that in a tortilla 
you know, like corn preferably, but you can use, you know, flour if that's your choice. Uh, and then you make your taco with this, that shrimp. And then you put like, you you pickle some sliced red onions very lightly with some lime juice and some salt, maybe for like 10 minutes. You put that on, you know, on your shrimp and then you can put some shredded cabbage and some avocado and ready to go. Delicious shrimp tacos for a weeknight. Fascinating. <laughs> I'm going to try this recipe. Okay. Sounds awesome. Let me know. Maria, thank you again so much for your time. This has been fantastic having you back. The last question, I think it's super quick. Are you hiring at the moment? And if so, where can folks go to learn about how they may end up potentially being on your team or, or being in your group somewhere? Yes, I am actually. Our team is doubling in size. I am hiring data scientists in Atlanta and in Dublin right now. So we're going to be you know, a very uh, worldly team because uh, I'm based in Seattle. So if you go to Microsoft Jobs and search in hashtag identity jobs, I think uh, all my jobs should be listed there. I'm looking for you know, data scientists, as I said, to work on fraud and, and cybersecurity. And it's a, it's a great team. Hopefully, yeah, if, you're, if that's something you're into, please apply. Awesome. We will put the link in the show notes. Maria Puertas Cabo, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great conversation. Always a pleasure, Nick. Thank you so much. Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT Security or email us at securityunlocked at Microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe. Stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.